What I like to do a lot is go back in history, recent pop culture history, and look at the way that Latinx people have been portrayed in media. So those, those notions of authenticity you mentioned, I'm obsessed with that. Like, I'm obsessed with the origin of, of Mexican food, for example, or Latin American food in the United States. So I've done shows where I make full-on recreations of like Tex-Mex food, right? Or I do these shows in response to Taco Bell, right? I just did a big solo show in Des Moines, Iowa, where I made a giant 20-foot in circumference sculpture of a taco pizza because in the Midwest they eat taco pizza which I did not know which is incredible so yeah so that's kind of my niche now is like I like to reference art history and reference museum collections and have a dialogue uh, with art history and at the same time I like to highlight Latinx culture in places and also point out kind of these ridiculous iterations of what America thinks Latinos are. You're listening to The Follow, a multicultural podcast from creative agency Sanders Wingo, where we talk to up-and-coming BIPOC creators, movement makers, and thought leaders who we follow. These are influencers who you might not know about, but we think you should. We talk to them about their work, worldview, and how they use their platform. But we also cover race, identity, and all things culture in a format designed to help us all get smarter about culture. If you like the show, please do us a huge favor and subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. It boosts the show's visibility so other people can find and enjoy it as well. In this episode, we speak to Justin Favela, a mixed media artist born in Las Vegas, Nevada, known for his large scale installations and sculptures that comment on American pop culture and the Latinx experience. In our conversation, he talks about how he uses piñatas as a medium to express his identity and explore the notion of authenticity, how being a queer person of color shaped his work, how his work has changed because of the pandemic and racial reckoning. And he also speaks about the other innovative projects that he's working on. Hosting this conversation is Dana Satterwhite, creative director at Sanders Wingo. Now, here's Dana but I'm happy to be here with the fabulous Justin Favela. So just tell us, who is Justin Favela? Okay. Who is Justin Favela? Well, I am a visual artist. I am a queer, Latinx, Mexican, Guatemalan-American living in the Southwest. I was born and raised in Las Vegas. And I didn't always think I was going to be an artist. You know, I just art kind of found me and I, it was like one of the only things that I was good at. So I just kind of stuck with it. And yeah, so I'm, I've been an independent artist now for five years, which I never thought this day would come where I didn't have to have a day job in an office somewhere to sustain my life, you know, especially being born in Las Vegas and being, you know, a son of immigrants, like I was just taught, all right, you got to work at the casino and then you retire, get your pension and that's your life. You know what I mean? So I'm just like really happy that I'm an artist right now, first and foremost, and, and doing my own thing. So five years, five years as an independent artist, but an artist to some degree, much degree for, for a lot longer than that. So so tell me about what preceded that five years. Well, like I mentioned, I was in band before. So I was in, I was like a really musical kid growing up. And that's how I kind of expressed myself creatively. And, you know, I grew up a really strict evangelical Christian. So that I feel like that was really the only way I could get away was like to say, hey, I'm going to band practice, which I really used to my advantage in high school when I'd be like, yeah, there's a midnight concert. Gotta go, mom. And so, <laughs> so yeah, so when I went into college, I thought I was going to pursue that, maybe teach, you know, uh, and then I found out really quick that I was not good at music <laughs> when I got to the college level. And there was these like amazing, talented performers. I played the tuba and, you know, if anybody plays the tuba, they know that if you can hold the tuba. Uh, without falling over in high school or middle school, like you got it, you know, first chair, here you go. You don't really know how, you don't really have to know how to play it, but that wasn't the case in college. So then I kind of shifted 
And I always wanted to be a teacher. So then I went into like secondary education, focused on history for a couple semesters. And then I took a drawing class by now my dear friend, Wendy Kavek, uh, who's a great local artist here in Vegas. And oh my gosh, it just totally changed the trajectory of like my life. I started, then I took a design class and then I just like fully switched my major and started to take art classes. And that's where I found my people, you know, my art people. And those are still my best friends to this day, the, the people that I, that I kind of grew up with and found myself with in college. And honestly, I graduated and I didn't feel like, I still didn't feel like I was an artist. I just thought, okay, cool. I have an art degree. I was working at the Neon Museum at that point for many years. So I thought, cool, I guess I'm going to be a museum professional now because that's what you do when you have an art degree. And, you know, I just kept getting art gigs. And eventually, years later, you know, I left the museum and I took the leap and did this residency and said, okay, when I come back, I'm just not going to go back to my job and try to keep doing this. And that was five years ago. And honestly, that's when I also felt like, okay, I'm an, I can say that I'm an artist now because it's just like a weird technicality. Like my, all my income comes from my art and from what I do creatively. But, you know, I realize now that I've been an artist my whole life. You know, I just didn't really categorize myself as that. That's amazing. And I love that sentiment. And I love that you've been able to just embrace it. Talk to me a little bit. There, there's so many different places I want to go based off of what you just said. Let's just start with how you identify. You said Latinx. Yeah. So let's, just, let's just talk about the term Latinx versus Latino versus Latina, you know, versus, you know, Mexican. You said Guatemalan, which that was something I did not necessarily know. Talk to mm -hmm. me about that, about, about how you identify. Yeah. I mean, I've had a lot of conversations with a lot of Latinx artists now because of the internet, honestly, and all these discussions we're having on Twitter. But Latinx is a term, is a, basically an umbrella term that is non-gendered and it encompasses all the countries that are part of Latin America. So that doesn't necessarily focus on the language spoken in the country. So which is different than Hispanic. So Hispanic is a word that was made up to identify places that were conquered by Spain and it's a Spanish speaking country. So Latinx is, is a broader term that, you know, includes places like Brazil, Guyana, you know, like places that don't have really Spanish speakers as their prominent people. So Latino, Latina, obviously those are still really important identifiers specifically for people that really want you to identify their gender and are doing work that is specific to that. And I will say the term Latinx, like, you know, the quote unquote, like woke social justice warriors, you know, behind their keyboards have been using that term for over a decade now. And, you know, academia caught up and they're using it now. And, Language is just going to keep evolving because I know that for my family personally, Latinx is just a really, it doesn't really roll off the tongue, especially in Spanish. It's Latin, Latinx, you know, like what the <laughs> hell? So um, like my grandma's not going to say that, you know? And so now a lot of people are also using the term Latine, which is adding the E at the end, which actually flows a lot better, which I actually like. But I do remember when I first heard the word Latinx, and this was probably like seven years ago for me, I thought, oh, God, it's so ugly. Why would you even use that word? Why are you trying to put us all in one big umbrella anyway? What's the big deal? What's the big deal? Right. And then I, I started to meet more and more folks with, you know, the work that I was doing and that didn't identify as male or female that were questioning their gender that, you know, just wanted to just wanted to have a word that, you know, that was a little broader and Latinx was the perfect word for that. And, you know, now all the white curators of the art world have really latched onto that word. And it's really cool right now. So, you know, I've been really busy as part of these Latinx shows across the United States the last four years. So, yeah, that's that's a little bit about that word from my perspective. It's fantastic. 
and um, and I, I appreciate it. I appreciate the education. Talk to me a little bit. Again, these are all things that have to do with culture and identity and how you identify. You identify as queer. Mm-hmm. Talk to me a little bit about that. Well, I this is this is very related to the word Latinx because. Queer, I feel like, is also a, an umbrella term for the LGBTQIA two-spirit community, right? So, like, queer has always had kind of a negative connotation, or it has for many people. The generation before me, for example, right? Like, Generation X and before that, being called a queer was maybe, was an insult. And so it's like a way to to reclaim that word and use it and, and change the meaning of it, right? So... I, I like I also like the word queer because I don't know I I I don't really I mean I I identify as gay but you know if you know if a lady gives me a strong handshake and the night's right who knows right so like <laughs> queer maybe is a more queer is maybe a better identifier for me you know and uh, and I also like that the word is now also tied to queer rights and to queer history and 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 that's also important to talk about yeah. So how was it growing up? You said you have a very strong evangelical Christian upbringing. Yeah. What was that like? What was your, what was your childhood like? Oh, man. Well, we went to church a lot. Uh, <laughs> you know, Wednesdays, we went to prayer. Friday, we met with the youth group. Saturdays, you know, every day was something, right? And so it was interesting because I, I guess I didn't really know how like repressed and how shameful of everything I felt until I really got, I think until I got to high school or college where I started to make friends with other people. Actually in high school, I had mostly Mormon friends that, you know, we kind of jived because a lot of the same, <laughs> a lot of the same values were shared, you know, but then when I got to, when I got to college and I started to meet more like, you know, in my eyes, like really eccentric people. Now they're just like, you know, my roommates, um, I feel like I felt the effects of being raised in a very Christian household, you know, because if just to express joy felt like a sin, you know what I mean? And so that's just really constricting. So when I really, when I realized that, you know, just a few years ago, honestly, thanks to therapy, it really kind of has opened my eyes. And, and like I said, made me realize how like traumatic that kind of upbringing could be to somebody. But I also don't regret that I grew up that way because it really has kind of shaped the person that I am today. And, you know, the art world loves trauma, especially from people of color. So <laughs> it's it's endless inspiration for artworks for me. Love that. But yeah, my, my, my grandmother, my grandmother is still a very devout evangelical Christian. And my mom, you know, she's, she, you know, she's, a lot more open now. She's, she goes to church once in a while still, you know, so even though I don't really believe in all of that anymore, I still have to respect their choice to, to be in that. And then on my dad's side, which is the Mexican side of my family, which is not the evangelical side, they're Catholic. And to me, going to Catholic church was actually entertaining and fun, which people that were raised Catholic think I'm crazy when I say that but they don't understand having to sit through like four hour services when you're a kid. And then you go to Catholic church and it's like an hour and there's music and snacks and you, you get exercise, you stand up, you sit down, there's beautiful decorations everywhere. It's theater, you know? So it was like, it was, it was very interesting to almost have this. uh, I don't know. I, I felt like Catholicism was just a, was a show, you know, it wasn't, and I was also taught that, that it wasn't real. It was all like, you know, Catholicism was like make-believe, right? Because Christianity, evangelical Christians were the way. So it was a very interesting way to grow up thinking that way. And it definitely, I think, affected the way or, or the things that like I'm attracted to now or the things that I find interesting definitely stem from, from that kind of weird you know, those weird mental gymnastics that I had to do growing up, especially when it came to like code switching as well for me, because I've had to code switch since I was little from a Guatemalan accent to a Mexican accent to, you know, being able to pass as Catholic to, you know, lying that I didn't go to Catholic church with my grandma kind of thing. Talk a little bit more about code switching, you know, maybe define that 
a little more clearly for for some folks out there? Yeah, I mean, I've been code switching my whole life and I didn't realize I was doing it or that there was a term for it. And uh, we all do it. Like we all talk different at work. We talk a certain way with our mom than we do with our boss, right? So that is called code switching. And for people of color, code switching is something that we do on a regular basis, not only because it's just easier to communicate with people, but it's also like for survival and protection, you know? For example, when I was a kid and I went to my Mexican side of the family, they would kind of poke fun at the way that I would say certain things in a Guatemalan accent. So I learned very quickly to just like, oh, learn how to say it in Mexican. And so I could kind of switch back and forth between between the way that I spoke Spanish. It's not only in that those situations, but they can also happen, for example, like if you're if if you're a flamboyant gay guy and you're dad doesn't like that because he's a homophobe, you know, you would come home and you would speak differently. So code switching works on very many levels. We all do. And it's harmless. And it's actually very helpful and, and very considerate to kind of switch the way you talk in a social setting that's appropriate, you know, for the setting. But sometimes it's also like I said, it's, it's for survival and for a very different reason that you code switch. Have you ever found that um, people look at you differently or maybe kind of question your authenticity based upon the code switching that you do? For example, somebody like myself, I've had people, you know, say, oh, you're the whitest black person I know. You know what I mean? Yeah. Something, something like that. You know what I mean? And I'm like, okay, if that's how you, if that's how you choose to measure me based upon my speech patterns or, you know. Oh my, Dana, you have no idea. You have no idea. Well, and this is specifically with the Latina Latinx community, right? Like, I heard you talk the other day and you said piñata. It's piñata. Like, how could you say that? And I'm like, yeah, dude, I was speaking in English. Like, it's just my brain was in English mode. So that's how I said it, you know? Right. It happens all the time. And I used to I and I used to actually fall for that and think like, oh, man, they're right. I'm being fake. And now, you know, I, I don't really care and I don't really... Honestly, I don't really think about it that much. I just kind of naturally code switch depending on who's around me and how they're talking, you know, which is very liberating for me that I found a career where I don't have to code switch or it doesn't feel like it's forced, basically, you know. But I realized many years ago, I used to do this podcast called Latinos Who Lunch, and we had a lot of people write into that show about feeling like they weren't Mexican enough or they weren't Guatemalan enough or, you know, Chicano enough, which is Chicanos like Mexican-American, you know, like they didn't feel connected to their community because they couldn't really speak Spanish. And to that, I say like, okay, well, like English, Spanish is still colonizers that ruined us. So it's like, who cares what colonizers language you're speaking? You're just communicating, you know, and just because you can't speak Spanish doesn't mean you're less Mexican than your neighbor that can, you know, like, like you said, it's, it's these notions of authenticity that we're so tied to and that we're, we kind of find our validation through these notions that are honestly just part of the binary, uh, which I'm going to sound like a Tumblr millennial right now, but it's like part of the binary that is an agent of white supremacy, right? Like, you're not this enough. You have to be this or this, right? Like, and with me as an artist, I, I actually like to champion those people and say that I'm a representative of you. Like, I forget how to say certain terms in Spanish. My Spanish isn't the best, but I'm out here trying, you know? And just because I can't speak Spanish, all, you know, fluently all the time doesn't mean I'm not, you know, a Latinx artist. So, yeah, I see that a lot. It starts in the home, you know, like parents making fun of their kids or grandparents making fun of their kids because they say words funny. And you're like, okay, well, yes, it's sometimes it is funny, but also like show them how to say the word if that's, you know, if that concerns you so much. It's a beautiful sentiment, man. And I, I wholeheartedly agree. It's complicated. Very, very, yeah. Very complicated. Talk to me a little bit about, you, you said something earlier in it, and it pertains to art and art school and your drawing class and your class and your design class and all that. You said you found your people. Tell me about that because I can, I can surely empathize. I feel like, you know, it was this 
it was like the island of misfit toys you know like all the versions of me in different worlds like met at the art department like you know like I, I don't know I always kind of felt like the black sheep of my family a little bit so when you have all these people that are really I guess looking for a purpose or or trying to express themselves creatively and you're kind of all in the same mindset of like being creative, creating something, you know, pushing conversations forward, learning how to use your hands and your body and what you create as a way to communicate. Like, it's just so fun to be around those kinds of people. And, and some people are lucky enough to meet their best friend in high school that jives with them in that way, you know, and they kind of grow up together and basically are family for the rest of their lives. But I was really lucky to find dozens of people with the same, you know, with that same drive, those same values, I guess. And gosh, I just learned so much. And I was honestly, it was really overwhelming when that happened because I always felt like I was just kind of playing the role you know, of like, okay, well, I guess I got to go to school now. Uh, I got a scholarship to go to UNLV. Cool. Uh, I'm not really good at tuba. So let me switch over to history. And then so when I found art, it was like, oh, cool. Like, I actually like doing this. And the people that are doing this are also really cool. And, and I knew then I'm like, I got to take advantage of this and soak up as much of this as I can right now, because this isn't going to last very long, even though I did go to school for seven years. But I'm you know, I'm still paying for that, literally. So did you see differences between yourself and these people or did you find commonality? Both, honestly, especially with the grad students that I met, like they, I feel like with the undergrads, there was a lot of commonality, specifically because, you know, we're all from Las Vegas and we grew up in the same place. But, you know, these friends of mine that I met, you know, we, we had that in common, but also, you know, they, they were just thinking kind of outside the box, you know, but then as far as the grad students, they had already gone through years and years of art school and traveled the world. And so it was really liberating really to see them not care and just do whatever they wanted to do. And sometimes that was shocking to me. Like, wait, what do you, you're going to, uh, shout out to my friend, Aaron Shepard, you're going to dress up as a mermaid and hang yourself in a net and have a guy tattoo your leg as a performance like what the heck I was just like okay I guess this is normal now <laughs> you know so if you're like surrounded by that it's just happening then it just really opens up your imagination to create other you know other things or scenarios I guess that I could have never imagined without experiencing that or seeing people do what they were doing. Talk to me a little bit about your work and you said a little bit earlier that the trauma that you suffered <laughs> in your life is a, is a great source of inspiration. Just talk a little bit about, about your work, how you arrived at your particular style and you know where that all emanates from. Yeah, so I think when I was in school, I was just trying to you know complete the assignment. And then when I really started to think more about what I actually wanted to make, I really didn't know. And, but, but, but I was also very inspired by art history. And so some of the first work that I started to do was a response to art history from the perspective that I mentioned before, from like a Southwestern United States Latinx queer perspective. Kind of the first big works that I did that got attention were copies of like, I, I now call them the great whites that you learn about in art history, right? And so I was really interested in minimalist art, because I couldn't believe that these dudes got away with making minimalist art in the 60s, and calling it art, you know. And so I would kind of start I kind of started making tongue in cheek kind of copying these masterworks like a Donald Judd metal cube but I would make it with like thousands of tamales, like stacked up like bricks, you know, to make a cube, right? So recreating these pieces in like my own visual language or like taking Richard Serra's big, like, you know, installations that you have to walk through that are big sheets of metal in rooms. And I would just make big 
Dorito shaped cardboard pieces. So you had to walk through a bunch of Doritos, right? So these are the things that I was thinking about and kind of making fun of. And I, and I realized at the very beginning that the art world loves when you reference the art world. And so that was my in, right? And so I had kind of my big first solo show making, kind of poking fun at all the work at City Center, which is this big kind of resort complex in Las Vegas that has a really expensive multi-million dollar art collection, right? So I like recreated a Maya Lin and a Henry Moore, uh, Jenny Holzer piece at a cardboard, right? Like very lo-fi. And that kind of became my aesthetic, like using cardboard, paper, found objects as part of, uh, you know, as, as part of the, the mediums that I use to, to make these big sculptures slash installations. And those, that was definitely inspired by, by the Chicano movement by ASCO, which was a collective in East LA in Los Angeles that was doing a lot of political work, but the, the word is called rasquache, kind of this rasquache aesthetic of like making do with what you have and kind of piecing things together with familiar materials. And I really like that. And then I found pinata. And because I was thinking about a symbol that would you know, that would very easily communicate this American, you know, strip mall, first generation Mexican American aesthetic. And I think the piñata was it. You know, everybody in the United States knows what that symbol means. And kind of, even though they don't know the real history of it, they know that it comes from Latin America or comes from Mexico. So then I just started to study more of cartoneria, like paper craft in Mexico really got into that and did a few residencies in Mexico. And then the piñata really became my main medium. And I started to make bigger and bigger sculptures with, with cardboard, glue, tissue paper. And eventually I just started taking over whole gallery spaces and making these kind of immersive installations and tying in the art history. I started to reference Mexican art history or Latin American art history. And, you know, fast forward, maybe five years after that, it like all kind of finally married together to make kind of the style or the the art shows that I do now, which are kind of site specific installations that reference maybe a museum's art collection, or the history of the region. Or what I like to do a lot is go back in history, recent pop culture history, and look at the way that Latinx people have been portrayed in media. So those, those notions of authenticity you mentioned, I'm obsessed with that. Like I'm obsessed with the origin of, of Mexican food, for example, or Latin American food in the United States. So I've done shows where I make full on recreations of like Tex-Mex food, right? Or I do these shows in response to Taco Bell, right? I just did a big solo show in Des Moines, Iowa, where I made a giant 20-foot in circumference sculpture of a taco pizza, because in the Midwest, they eat taco pizza, which I did not know, which is incredible. So yeah, so that's kind of my niche now is like, I like to reference art history and reference museum collections and have a dialogue uh, with art history. And at the same time, I like to highlight Latinx culture in places and also point out kind of these ridiculous iterations of what America thinks Latinos are. I like to kind of expose it with the kind of the scale and the colors and the very uh, like uh, simple materials that I use. Yeah. Why is it so important for you to call attention to the limited view of Latinos that perhaps an inordinate number of Americans may have. I think I do that to, to have these conversations, to talk about it, because honestly, a lot of times, it's Latinx folks, usually, they get offended sometimes by the stuff that I say or by, by the things that I'm celebrating, you know? Like, people can't let go about, you know, like, some of my friends can't let go about my obsession with Taco Bell and how I actually love it because Taco Bell is like my art. It's like so far removed from the original concept of like, for example, 
the Doritos Locos Taco. Okay, it's it's an American taco in a Dorito, in a shell made of a Dorito. Okay, the Dorito, the Dorito itself is a symbol that is what I'm talking about, right? It's like it's this product that was made, probably you know, in America to resemble something that is Mexican, but you'll never catch Mexicans eating chips like at a restaurant that's such an american thing right so it's this made-up thing but then it's made into the shell of a taco and then this taco is also a complete construction from some white man's imagination right shout out to glenn bell in the mid-century right who said who said i'm going to capitalize on the globalization of mexican food right now and and be responsible for it too by inventing the hard shell taco and making my, my tacos out of ground beef, lettuce, and tomato, which is wild. And then, and this is what the taco is gonna be known as, right? It's, they have basically appropriated a whole culture with one, one dish, you know? And then just adding that Dorito shell on top of it is like an extra slap in the face, right? And so I love that, right? And because that taco does that, it in itself is probably one of the most authentic tacos you will ever eat in the United States, right? So, because that's what America does, right? And so, <laughs> and so, yeah, so I feel like the responses are varied. Some people understand what I'm trying to do. Some people think that I'm like, which I am in a way that I'm just like celebrating all these things by making them piñata, which is the case sometimes. Like when I reference like Latin American art historians. But at the same time, I think the work is to have these conversations. And I think the fact that they're made out of piñata makes it more accessible because everybody kind of understands what tissue paper is, what cardboard is you know, if they're responding to the work, they already know kind of what I'm referencing. So it kind of opens up the floor to have these conversations and maybe not even have them in such an academic way too. just like have fun conversations about what you're looking at. And, and also I, I, being from Vegas, you know, everything here is about the facade. Everything is about the surface and, you know, the facade and the smoke and mirrors here, that is our reality, right? And I think that's the truth for the rest of the world. Like, we just know that the jig is up in Vegas. Like, we all know that's what it is. And so physically covering buildings or galleries in paper to expose kind of the realities behind what I'm talking about is, I think, such an interesting kind of dichotomy, but also, like, it's such a great way to start conversation. I think that's really what it is, you know. The nature of the conversation what is the most important thing that you want to cover in a conversation that's say spurred on by a piece that you've created? Honestly, any kind of conversation at all. If you think about it, how many times have you gone to an art museum with your family and you actually sit down after and be like, oh my gosh, that exhibition, that piece, what'd you think about it? Let's talk about it. I rarely do that. And when I do I know that, okay, that was important. What we just saw there was important. If I'm still thinking about it a day later, a week later. And so just the fact that people are having conversations, I think is really important. So that's why I try to make the work so personal to myself, because I know that if the work is personal and if the work is accessible, I feel like those conversations happen more often. And then you're hit with also nostalgia when you see these materials and that also makes you feel a little bit safer and more connected to the work I feel like. So it's safe to say that the last year, the last 12 to you know 24 months have been fairly insane. Yeah. Do you, this is not even so much about the pandemic, but you know the racial reckoning that's been going on uh, you know since early 2020. Do you feel your, your perspective has changed or your work has changed, your sort of your compulsion to deliver a message with your work? Has, has any of that changed as a result of 
some of the, you know, the things that have been happening in our country racially. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, 2020 was tough for everybody, but, you know, specifically Black folks in the United States, you could sugarcoat it, but it's like there's public lynchings happening, you know, still today. And, and it's been so normalized that we don't even recognize it, you know? And so when this whole movement, I didn't start, but recharged this movement in 2020 because of, of course, George Floyd, it also made me realize a lot about kind of my activism and how my activism was also very performative because that's what the, again, that's what the U.S. is really good at. Symbolic gestures, right? Performance. That's what we do here. So I really had to take a step back and think like, what am I actually doing to help or to not even to further the conversation, but to just like to help and help us progress past this uh, and to make this a better place. Right. And I started to really look inward and look at my family and realizing that I'm not having these like social justice warrior conversations with my mom and my brothers who are actually the people that I'm making fun of online, you know? And so, or that, I, that I'm, that I'm criticizing online, uh, you know, for, for carrying on these values of white supremacy without even realizing it. Right. And so it was a tough year between my family and I, because I just had to say, all right, it's been too long. I've ignored racist comments from y'all my whole life. I've ignored the fact that the colorism in our family is out of control. Like you guys need to stop calling each other these things. You guys need to recognize that this is what it is. I'm not going to put up with this anymore just because I don't want to, because I want to avoid conflict because not having these conversations is the reason why people are dead. It was tough. I didn't talk to a lot of my family for a very long time when I would just point things out in regular conversation. Also, like my family being raised evangelical Christian on my Guatemala and my mom's side, like we're also, you know, trained from a very young age to trust the president, to trust authority, to trust the police. And it's really hard. You know, I have been reprogrammed, thankfully, um, through, through my art people, like I mentioned, right? And through my experiences, or I'm still being deprogrammed, I should say. And so it, it was just a lot of me recognizing that I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to change the world in a day, you know, and that I needed to start with with my family and my closest friends first before going online and trying to be a white savior myself. Right. Or thinking like, Oh, cool. Like I put this GoFundMe link up. Like I did my active, I did my activism for the week. Right. Like it's, it, it was, it was just a very reflective time and also a very draining time because I also was helping with some social justice campaigns here in Las Vegas, specifically with the neon museum and how they didn't really serve their black and brown communities because I used to work there. So I knew firsthand how racist that institution was, right? And so, and I was part of it. So there was some guilt there too, right? So there was a lot of reckoning that happened. And <laughs> and honestly, it, it like, it was kind of, you know, a lot of people's true colors really revealed themselves during that time. And that was really disappointing and sad. So I went through a range of emotions, a lot of depression, and 2020 was rough because then not also were we dealing with a pandemic, we were also grieving, you know, I had a few family members pass away because of COVID. And then maybe six months passed by and we we're all expected to carry on like this is normal again. Right. And so, yeah, it's been a lot. But I feel like right now I'm talking to you now. I feel like this maybe this past couple months has I feel like I'm finally moving forward in a positive way from my experience the last, you know, from 2020, I'm still processing 2020 and it's the end of, you know, it's 2022 or whatever. It's crazy. I don't know if that answered your question. I just started talking. <laughs> yeah. There's been so much to process the past yeah. couple of years on so many different levels. You make a good point. You know, here we are at the end of 2021 and we're still healing from things that yeah. happened, you know, nearly two years ago. Um, I find that 
my artist friends are just um, very intrepid in their approach to life, you know, and I think the ability yeah. to, you know, and I think there are a lot of people out there who, who don't possess that, that inner drive to create and thus they want to do things in other places in their lives, but maybe, you know, they shy away from them because they don't have the, the confidence that it can actually happen, you know? So yeah, part of it, I think is being afraid to fail publicly. Um, and I don't have that fear. <laughs> I have failed publicly many times, but what people don't realize is that most people don't remember those failures. If you're doing something successful alongside it, you know, I am risk averse. I'm not going to say I'm not, but I don't know. I, I just think in the grand scheme of things, who's going to remember this, you know? And that's how I get the courage and the confidence to go in on a project. And then once it's like when Latinos for who lunch first started, you know, that first six months, I was like, girl, this is rough. I don't know if we're going to be able to do this, but I just kept at it and kept learning, kept watching YouTube videos on how to edit audio, you know, and we made it work. And so I think that process of problem solving is the skill that I have that I'm most proud of, I think, is like, I'll just try, I just keep trying. I just keep trying and trying until I figure it out, you know? And so I think a lot of artists, I think if they just realize like, hey, if you try something and it doesn't work out, you don't have to put it on your resume. Just try it out. You never, you will never know if you can do something. And, you know, and I think that comes from, you know, maybe growing up with limited resources and just like, I actually thank my mom for this all the time. Like, thanks. Cause my mom would just be like, oh, you really want to do that? Cool. Figure it out. You know, like you can do it. Just, I don't have the money to buy that for you, but if you can figure out how to get it, sure. You know? And so I think that's just kind of been like the way that I work as far as visual art. It is scary to, for example, like me, I'm known as this pinata artist that or this artist that's work inspired by pinatas, that's how I should say it, not pinata artist. But like, you know, if I make something that's not a pinata, people scratch their heads and it's not this, it's not in my like comfort zone or whatever. But you know, to me, that's, that's kind of a blessing because I could always just fall back on the thing that, you know, that I originally started with. Like I never knew I was going to be a successful podcaster. And I always thought, well, I could just keep making these installations. It's okay. You know? So I guess if you have that, you know, kind of support system, then it's fine. So go in there, make mistakes, you know, like it's going to be, it's going to be fine. We talked about your, your inspiration. Are there any artists out there specifically doing work that you see right now that you think is particularly important or relevant? Oh God, I just have so many amazing Latinx uh, artists that are now my friends and that I've actually hung out with in person. People like my friend Francisco Donoso in, in New York, Yvette Mayorga out of Chicago is doing really amazing work. Jose Villalobos in San Antonio, Texas. Josue Ramirez in McAllen, Texas, uh, or I think he lives in Brownsville now. So it's like, uh, I, I just get to meet all these people that I'm inspired by like all the time which is so cool. Let me think of uh, recently. Oh, recently I went to Miami. I, it was my first art fair experience. I went to Art Basel and that was wild. And seeing all that work was also very inspiring. Have you ever been to an art fair before? I've never been to Basel. I've been to things that are much, much smaller than that. It's just wild to see that much art in like, well, like a convention space. And it, you know, the art kind of all runs together you know, you kind of start seeing themes throughout the, throughout the fair. And what I noticed this year was there's a lot of people of color doing portraiture, which is, I think, really amazing too, because I, I can see a future now that will have museums where with more Black folks like hanging in galleries, you know, which is so important because I will never, I'll never forget that experience of going into my first like big art museum and just seeing a bunch of, you know, like, old dead white people in paintings and thinking like, oh, I guess this is what, I guess this is art history. I guess this is, you know, what we're supposed to admire, you know? And so 
going to Art Basel made me think like all these portraiture artists that are famous now, those are all, all of, I mean, they're just so inspiring to me because I'm thinking of that future of, you know, a kid that's going to walk into a museum 50 years from now and actually see themselves on the walls. That's going to be incredible, right? So those are artists that you, and I, I think you're spot on. That's, that's a, an amazing experience for a child or, you know, for anyone going to a museum and seeing artists, being able to connect with them and, and see work that is being done by somebody who looks like them, who comes from a similar experience. So incredibly powerful. Is there anyone who, I know you said Instagram isn't your favorite at the moment. Um, so maybe, you're, maybe you're moving away from that, but are, are, there, are there people, not even necessarily artists who you're, you're following? Who are you kind of looking towards? What, what trends are you kind of, you know, looking at what, what's on your radar right now? Oh, yeah. I, I, I don't know. I just kind of organically follow people online. And I think I'm mostly inspired by like mo uh, multimedia artists because, you know, I really do strive to, to be somebody that will eventually be known for more, you know, like I'm already known for like podcasting and installation art. Like I really want to get into, you know, get back into doing more, more collaborations with like social justice groups. I have worked with them in the past, but I really love the work that Culture Strike is doing online. And they're, I think they're at Culture Strike on, on Instagram. And they're in an advocacy group for undocumented folks based in the Bay Area, I think. But, you know, their work covers the entire United States. And they're, they have a huge focus on art because of their director, Fabiana, and they mostly hire artists, a lot of graphic designers you know, to get the word out, to get messaging out. And so to see that work is inspiring to me. There is this, uh, the Milagros Collective, who I think they're based out of Florida. I just met them in real life uh, in Miami when I was there and I love their work. They make sculpture, but I mean, they literally were painting a swimming pool in Miami, like doing this really cool design in a swimming pool. You know, muralists, artists that are muralists, People that are doing work that's uh, that's accessible and about community, I really find that inspiring because my niche, you know, or like I keep saying niche, but like my product or like what I do is really focused within the art world and the museum world. And so I think I'm based on this on the people that I'm following now, I see that I'm more interested or want to push my work more into the public eye than inside of the walls of a building, you know? So I'm really looking at public art opportunity. Um, our friend here in Las Vegas, uh, Luis Varela Rico, who is this amazing metal worker making these huge public artworks. So yeah, I'm following more and more people like that that are, that are more multifaceted. And even performance artists, which like performance art for me, I, I, for many years, I didn't understand. I'm like, okay, what's going on? I, is this, am I performing or are you performing? Cause this is brutal, man. But like, I, I think I'm going to maybe start doing more performance work, you know? So yeah, that's, I think those are the folks that, that inspire me. Where can people follow you? Where can they, where can they find you? What's the easiest way to track down Fabio <laughs> Justin Favela? Funny enough on Instagram. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm at Favi Fav. That's F A V Y F A V on all social media platforms. So you can reach out on Twitter, Instagram. But honestly, you can find my email online if you want to work with me in a serious way. Email me. Isn't it wild though? Have, like having there's people that use Instagram messaging as email almost, and I don't know how people. I cannot keep track of my life if that's if I do that. So no offense to people that do that, but I cannot, I have to have it in my email. Anyway, as an elder millennial, stop sending me Instagram <laughs> messages. <laughs> um, but yeah, you can find me on Instagram. I'm working on my website now, but like I said, also art people pod is coming back next year or probably by the time this comes out this year. So yeah, check out artpeoplepod.com and you can go to justinfavela.com as well. Fantastic, Matt. Um, Justin Favela, you are a tremendous talent. 
and I appreciate you taking time to speak with us here on the follow and um, look forward to, well, let me ask you this one last question. What is, sure. what is, what is next for Fabi? Oh my gosh. Oh, okay. This is exciting. I'm working with Fusebox, uh, which is an uh, organization in Austin, Texas, that does this big festival every year. Like, a, uh, they don't call it this, but it's like a new genres performance festival. It's a little bit more broad than that. So there's music, performance art, activations, things like that. And they, I have joined their team and we're putting on another festival now in Arkansas, Northwest Arkansas in 2022. It's called Live in America. And that's going to be the first two weekends in June. You can just search Live in America or go to the Momentary going to happen at the museum this new museum called the momentary that's the sister institution to crystal bridges museum of american art which is out there so yeah i'm really looking forward to representing vegas in this festival i'm bringing along artist wendy quebec brent holmes adriana chavez heidi Ryder, several other folks and we're gonna we're gonna activate the museum for for a whole day which will be really amazing really fun and that's taking place in 2022, uh, specific dates? Yes, June 1st, those first uh, two weekends in June. And yeah, all the information is at the momentary, I think, .com. All right, that sounds fantastic. Thank you so much uh, for taking time out of your schedule. I know you're busy, but it's been great, great connecting and hearing everything that you have going on and hearing your perspective on all of these things, uh, culture, art, identity, uh, and all the communities you belong to. So thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Justin, for being here and taking the time to share a little bit of your world with us. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to The Follow, a multicultural podcast from creative agency Sanders Wingo. For show notes, past episodes, or to get notified when a new episode comes out, visit thefollowpodcast.com. And if you like the show, please subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. It boosts the show's visibility so other people can find and enjoy it as well. Until next time, take care.